Hello, everyone, and welcome to the third installment of the Sex Education Podcast for Men. Um, I am here with a good friend, Jared. Um, we've built quite the relationship over the past year, both online and finally meeting in person this past summer. We've hit it off with a lot of different conversations revolving sex, and today we want to talk about the dominance versus submissive complex. Jared has a lot of experience in this, so he can shed a lot of light on it, especially for me. I'm not experienced in it at all whatsoever, so I don't know what that life is like, and I would like to learn more about it from someone that's been a part of, has had those um, types of experiences for quite some time. So, hey, Jared, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you doing tonight? I am doing well. Everything's been great, and I'm excited to hold this conversation with you. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. What intrigued you about this dynamic? Where did you hear about it? How did you, you know, learn about it, and what made you want to try it? In my freshman college days, I was dating someone who was a bit kinky and kind of explored a few things here and there. But it, you know, looking back, it felt very like typical college exploration, if you will. I got married relatively young, 26. My wife and I are now married 25 years. And maybe halfway through that time, we just started speaking more openly about desires and things that, you know, doesn't matter how much you trust somebody or how close you are to them. It's very hard to open up about desires and fantasies because you're always worried that they're not going to be into something you suggest. The conversation kind of, I don't even remember how it started, but it came up sort of naturally that we kind of wanted to explore different things. And ultimately, about 10 years ago, we started this whole exploration with a BDSM workshop that was two days long with Om Rupani. And that workshop really, really opened our eyes. In a sense, we weren't quite ready, but in another sense, it forced the issue in a good way. So what was nice was because we had talked about it for years before really doing anything, it felt very comfortable going into it. We knew there were going to be things that we didn't agree on necessarily. And the idea was, let's be open to the exploration. Let's talk about it and let's see what happens. It's great that you have someone in your life that you can, you know, explore that with. I know I've become more sexually open to different experiences, but finding that person to talk about it with and share about it with has been quite difficult. Like you said, you never know if the person is going to be into the same things that you are. So it puts you in a precarious situation. You kind of just got to be completely, you know, vulnerable if it doesn't work out doesn't work out. You just got to, you know, keep shooting your shot until you do find someone that is willing to explore and try new things. Just so you could say you've tried. It may not be for you. You may be interested in it. It may turn you on when you think about it. But when it comes to the actual act of doing it, you may realize that it's not actually for you. And it's just something that like you like to fantasize about, but not necessarily execute on. And we'll probably come to this at some point, but I just heard today on Dan Savage's Love, Savage Lovecast, you know, sex advice podcast, this person called in saying that, you know, his partner was into being degraded and he wasn't. And their relationship up until this point had been open and he'd been going to somebody else for degradation. And now that they were becoming closer and more in love and potentially wanting to be monogamous, He wanted to be that for his partner, but he wasn't sure that he could. And Dan's answer was very simply, you are being a loving partner simply by letting him go elsewhere for that because you aren't all going to always be into the same things. And that's incredibly open and loving right there. 
That's awesome. That's super beautiful. And knowing that you won't be able to, you know, fulfill that for your partner, but allowing them the freedom and having the trust that they can go out and explore that with different people, not have that, you know, unwavering love still being held for you. That's extremely rare um, relationship and should be nurtured, you know, to the fullest, in my opinion. What kind of feelings came up for you when you did decide to talk to your wife about it? Were you scared or shy? Did it take a little while for it to come up? Or did it just like you both just kind of had like this agreement that you wanted to explore new things? Yeah, initially it was it was very casual and it came up sort of naturally and there wasn't a lot of anxiety. And then we did that workshop. There were sort of two phases of this for us because we didn't do a whole lot after that workshop other than like spanking and a little bit of light bondage uh, in the bedroom. And it wasn't until a couple of years later that where my wife discovered uh, a sex uh, coach and educator named Miss Jaya. And Miss Jaya has authored something called The Erotic Blueprint. We took the quiz and The Erotic Blueprint's goal is to tell you which of the five sexual personas are most desirable to you. It's a lot like love languages, but it's, it's kind of sex languages, if you will. It's sexual, sensual, energetic, kinky, or shapeshifter. Just like everything else sexual, it's kind of all a spectrum. When we did this, I scored very high for kinky, and my wife didn't score as high for kinky, but enough so that we were like, okay, we're not incompatible. But that really opened the conversation more fully. And then there's kind of a second part to this, which you can take, there's kind of a yes, no, maybe questionnaire of things you may, may or may not want to do. And we each took this separately and went through this list of things, you know, so it's impact play, it's bondage, it's degradation, it's, it's everything you can think of. And you say, yes, I want to try that. No, I definitely don't want to try that. Or maybe I want to try that. And then you compare notes. And what was nice about doing it that way is it felt kind of academic where we had disagreements, we could have a conversation about it sort of intellectually as opposed to emotionally. That was a great entree into the conversation because we didn't start with, wait, you want to do what? Because we both had, you want to do what? Somewhere on ours that the other one didn't. So tools like that are really, really helpful, but you still have to have that basis of trust to start. I think trust is probably, you know, the biggest thing in terms of sex in general, you're opening yourself up to a way that nobody else is really going to see there's, you know, how many people do you come across every single day? And you know, how many of them are you actually having sex with? It's a very, very small percentage. So not only, you know, exploring being dominant or submissive and BDSM and all the different kinks and fantasies, and even, you know, switching gender roles, people are into that as well. So being completely open and having this conversation with your partner and your partners having this ongoing conversation with you. And this is, you know, constantly changing what you're necessarily into today may not be what you're into a year from now or a couple of years from now. As you grow and change, so do your um, sexual desires and you want, you know, different things at different times. I know for me, I always thought of, you know, sex as only a monogamous type of thing. And now I'm exploring the fact maybe I do not want to be in a monogamous relationship, want to properly try a polyamorous relationship. I guess I kind of have back in, you know, college days and stuff. Like I had people I would have girls I would have sex with that we weren't mutually exclusive, but like 
we also weren't in a polyamorous relationship. It was just like very casual sex, but we were free to do whatever we want whenever we want with other people. Like there was no like jealousy or emotional attachment really there. But maybe that's just more because we were young and we were just, we were in college. We didn't want to be tied down to a relationship. It was more like that versus like a proper one. Being able to find a person that I can, you know, open up and share that with and see if they're willing to do the same. I know I have a fantasy of, you know, wanting, you know, my future person, whoever that may be, to want to be open. I want them to go out and explore and try different things and see what they like. I don't want them to just to be only me. For me, it just doesn't feel healthy. All the monogamous relationships that I've seen, for the most part, were pretty unhealthy. And maybe that's why I have this viewpoint, but at least I'm willing to explore it and see. And if I end up seeing that it's not for me, I prefer monogamous relationship, I can always, you know, revert back to that. Like it's not a one size fits all solution. You don't have to box yourself in into any one thing. One really, um, fascinating thing that has come for me of uh, of my wife and I opening our marriage is that we both find that when we explore something with another partner, we tend to bring energy back to each other. So I might go and see another partner because it's something that I want to do with that partner and not with my wife. But then the energy of that experience comes back with me and we have better sex because of it. It's interesting where like what could be jealousy can also be really powerful in a positive way if treated that way. Is there like a vetting process that you you guys have when um, exploring your partners? Do you run it by your wife and your wife talks to her and, and stuff and sees if her energy is okay? Because with a lot of people, you know, they talk about energy transfers during sex and if the person is depressed or not in the right state of mind or have a lot of things going on in their life and they're an emotionally heavy human being at that time, people think, you know, if you have sex with them, you're going to, you know, carry some of that energy back with you and you're going to hold on to it for quite some time. So is that a conversation that you guys have? Yeah, that's a great question because we don't have a rule about that. What has developed over time is really interesting because I had two partners early on at opposite ends of the spectrum, one of which was really, really contributing a lot of negative energy to me that I was bringing back to the relationship. And then when my wife met her, she was like, oh, I really don't like her. <laughs> and the other was kind of the opposite. While there's no rule or no guide, I do like to kind of like have my have my wife it's not often meeting them in an early stage but like understanding who this person is how i met them what i desire about them etc because as you probably know from any relationship your friends will see more clearly what's right or wrong in your relationship than you will this is true of partners when you're in an open or polyamorous situation i think i have avoided a few really bad situations because my wife said, mm, I'm not so sure about that. And here's why. And she never told me don't or no, because we just, we like to not have that agency over each other. But that guidance has been super powerful. So uh, I think it is, it's been really important for me, at least. For sure. Like, I know I would want to run it by, you know, my partner, if we were in a polyamorous relationship, I would have no problem her going, talking to other guys and having sex with other guys. But I would want to know that she's picking emotionally stable men that are not trying to manipulate her or take advantage of her in any way, or just trying to do like a quick kink fix and, you know, be done with it or anything. I want her to be 
in a safe and secure environment that I know I would try my best to of my ability to provide her for her, to provide to her, I should say. And I would want, you know, another partner to at least try to meet that standard, if not meet that standard. Once you started exploring this dominance versus submissive, you know, complex, how long did it take for you to notice that you preferred being the dominant one or the submissive one? And which one, you know, do you gravitate towards more? It's funny because the uh, the erotic blueprint, while I scored high for kinky, I, I, I fell predominantly into the shapeshifter category. And when it comes to kink, I consider myself somewhat switchy. I definitely am naturally more dominant, but I'm also far from the typical dom. And I'm, I'm definitely not into what's often referred to as service dom, which is the concept of like a 24-7 relationship where you have that power over that person all the time. I find that to be personally draining. And I know a few service doms who find it incredibly thrilling. So good for them. Just I found pretty quickly, even just in that workshop that we did for the two days, I definitely found that I had tendencies of a top or a dom. I, I enjoyed spanking, didn't necessarily enjoy being spanked, etc. My first outside kink partner is really, really where everything solidified because what my wife and I have learned over time is she's just not as kinky as me and that's fine. There are certain specific kink proclivities she has. And in fact, those are one of those shibari is uh, Japanese rope tying is one that she's asked me not to share with other partners because she considers it particularly sacred between us. And I'm totally fine with that. But there's so many other things that I enjoy that she doesn't. So it's perfect to explore that with another partner. And that first outside kink partner I had, I really had never done anything impact aside from spanking and a flogger. And floggers are, you know, on the, on the, on the impact scale, pretty low and pretty gentle and, and pretty, pretty tame. Can you explain that just in case people don't know what that is? Yeah, the flogger is um, typically leather and it has lots of like leather tails, if you will. So cut leather pieces. What happens in that type of impact is that it spreads out the impact. Think about the idea of like a rifle versus a shotgun. That single bullet carrying all the power is much stronger than the buckshot that comes out of a shotgun because it spreads out. And the other thing about a flogger is you can use it very, very gently and soothingly because it's very sensuous to brush effectively a broom of leather across somebody's body. So it has this, it has this, you know, very like double-sided coin or two, two edges, if you will. And this partner was very much into impact and we had talked about it a lot. And she and I are both like super intellectual about, about a lot of things, but kink especially. She came over one day and she handed me a set of Delrin canes. And Delrin canes are like the highest level of pain aside from whips and, and, and things that are going to like, it's, it's, it's one of the highest levels of pain without breaking, without drawing blood. And, and I was like, why are you giving me these? And she goes, because I want you to use these on me. And I said, I've never used anything like that before. And she said, yeah, but I know you, you're going to, you're going to explore, you're going to learn. And trust me, I won't let you use them till I think you're ready. Sure enough, she was absolutely right. I watched videos. I, I read articles and blog posts and books. And then one day, and something I very firmly believe as a top or a dom is that I will never do something to somebody else that I have not in some way explored for myself as the bottom. And obviously, there are certain activities you can't explore on yourself, um, especially if it's a gender specific. 
thing, but this was a perfect example where I hit myself with the canes on my thigh. I send her a picture of my very bruised thigh and she writes back to me, am I looking at your thigh? I said, yes. And she says, are those bruises from the cane? I said, yes. And she goes, okay, you're ready. And she was right. Like I explored, I learned, I tested and tell me if we'll get to this later, but negotiation is a key thing that we should talk about here, but I'll come back to that. But that scene with the canes that first time was super intense. She later told me it was the first time she'd ever orgasmed just from impact. And she was pretty experienced. And, and I learned that I'm a sadist. Like I had no idea how, how into pain play I could be. But I also recognized I was enjoying the pain that I was inflicting because I could see that she was enjoying the pain she was getting, she was receiving. There's a joke in the King community about punishment versus punishment. This was punishment. This was clearly for fun. There are people who want to be punished. They want to be put, put in painful situations without pleasure. Uh, this was not that. And uh, I learned I really enjoyed it. For me, I haven't really explored much of it yet. But when I do think about or, you know, fantasize about it, just because of my sexual experiences that I have had, I would be a switch also. I know some days I do want to be completely control over her pleasure, however that may be. And then there's other days where I want her to have full control over me and not let me have a choice of what goes down and what doesn't go down. So yeah, I really would love to, you know, explore this with somebody. Obviously, I would have to, you know, be safe and secure and know that they take everything into account. And maybe it's, you know, maybe it's with someone that hasn't tried it either. And we can explore it, you know, together. Who knows how that's going to come. But I definitely would consider myself a switch also but like preferably dumb for the most part. For me, there's nothing sexier um, and gets me, you know, off more than seeing that I'm pleasuring my woman to the, you know, to the fullest and she's really enjoying herself and it doesn't feel like a one-way street with her. It's completely sensual and connected on her end. And that way I know she's also um, going to make sure I have the best experience also. When we were preparing for this, you mentioned something about how the the dom-sub dynamic is often gender-related, and it's male-female, male-dom, female-sub. But there's also the very big stereotype of the female dom, and especially when it's like the powerful businessman looking to like give that up for an hour in the dungeon. And I never, I never really fell into that when I thought of myself as a submissive. But what happened was through a strange set of connections, I got connected to a woman by the name of Kasha Urbaniak. Kasha has done training as a Taoist nun, and she was also once the highest paid dom in New York City. So you could see like the two absolute polar opposites of, of her life. She has now combined those two things, and she runs a program. I'm blanking on the name at the moment, but it's not as relevant. But it's a program for women to help women empower themselves in everyday life through the techniques she learned in the dungeon, as well as the idea of meditative and Taoist states. And in that program, she brings men in occasionally as subjects to volunteer for the women to try out the things that they're learning on. And I have volunteered in several of her, of her sessions, and they have increased in intensity because I was a good volunteer for them, so they invited me back. And ultimately, I was the volunteer for basically their last session where they have 
they, I basically would sit on a stool and one by one, they would come up and they would completely dominate me, but it was almost entirely verbal and suggestive. They weren't allowed to touch. There was no physical contact allowed in this, in this scenario because it was supposed to be more like not in a dungeon, but what you would do in a business scenario, for example. Not exactly, but you get the idea. And I, first of all, when I left that, that session, the person who was like my handler had said to me, like, go take care of yourself. Give yourself a lot of self-care tonight. You may not realize it right now, but we've taken a lot from you in the last two hours. And I left there like, I feel fine. I don't know what you're talking about. And I was fine that night. And I woke up the next morning and I just started crying out of nowhere. And suddenly all of that energy washed over me. And suddenly I recognized what I was experiencing sitting on that stool and being the submissive to somebody who wants to express their dominance. And it was similar to the experience I mentioned about my partner getting off on just impact. I felt like I could get off just on knowing that they were in their most powerful state and that pleased them so much. And it wasn't about stripping power away from me, which is what a lot of especially men, but a lot of subs want. They want the power stripped away. I didn't see it that way. I saw it as my giving that power into them. It felt so incredibly beautiful to me. And now I, I've, I haven't yet really fully experienced a scene as a submissive, but I very much desire that now because of having those experiences. It's a energy exchange. You're allowing them to step in to something that they wouldn't normally necessarily feel. And you're allowing them to be that entirely. You're giving them permission to embrace their dominant self. And that can be very empowering for both you and for for them also like knowing that you can you have the power to release and let go and let someone step into something and be their you know fully dominant self and you have no judgment towards that and actually encourage it and want more of it like how is that not the most empowering thing for you know both parties i i really i never looked at it that way so i'm really glad you put it in that context and in that light and also like why do you think it is that it's there's a stereotype of and it's always white women too so it's always a white dominant woman that is taking control over an old white businessman they were black or something like people wouldn't be you know so into it or if the male, the male being the submissive was black, it would kind of be, you know, off because what you see in porn and stuff is always the black man being the most dominant one because he has the BBC or the big black cock, you know? I've never looked at those stereotypes before. And now it's really like opening a floodgates of different things I never really thought about. And that just like was the first thing that came to my mind. I'm like, why is it only white CEO owner type people like, you know, 60 plus that seem to be the main thing that's out there, out there in the mainstream? Why do you think that is? I think it's very simply the, the, the word mainstream. Stereotypes come from somewhere. I think that the idea of domination and submission is already such taboo that Fifty Shades of Grey, as terrible as it is, and every other portrayal in Hollywood is going to look like something that's familiar enough. It can push edges, but it's not going to scare people away. And what I mean by that is, 
I'm really glad you brought up the, the, the race dynamic here, because if you start to think about master and slave in the traditional sense, it could really, really take away from the idea of master and slave in a dungeon. I personally don't like the words master and slave in my dynamics because I don't like the origins of those terms. And I'll tend to use other, other, other terminology, and, it, and this is very personal. But I know several Black women who are doms. And for them, it's incredibly empowering to be able to have a white man that submits to them and they can use the racial dynamic as part of the scene and also as part of their their personal growth because this is you know if you take any marginalized group and you then give them control that's incredibly empowering it also could be very very dangerous in the wrong hands because it can become about the power instead of about the energy exchange or the power dynamic but the ones that i know are have have a very healthy relationship with that and it's also funny that you said how you know Hollywood always portrays it as you know white woman, white man, man is usually older, CEO, power, business man type. What's funny to me is knowing people in the scene, very few of the female doms I know are traditional white. They're either black or Asian or Latinx or there there's always like some hint of not just marginalized as a woman, but marginalized in another way, that they're taking back that control. And I think that's really, really powerful. Also to touch on the negotiating aspect of it all, that's a huge part of it. And I think we should definitely shed some light on um, the negotiation between the two partners of how you know the night or how the experience is going to go. Yeah. So aside from a 24-7 service relationship where even there you would have negotiated something before you begin that, and those negotiations would probably be even further. But every scene, and, and a scene is an important term in the kink community because the scene defines the start and end of what you have negotiated. And during the scene, the dynamics are very, very different than outside of the scene. And what I mean by that is outside of the scene, you can say and do whatever you want to one another. But if the scene, for example, is that I'm going to be dominating my partner in such a way that he or she must submit to my every command and they resist, that's going to bring about punishment or punishment, depending on the negotiation. But outside of the scene, you do want to disagree. You do want to have those understandings before you enter the scene so you know what is on and off the table. So negotiations can be very, very simple. It can be for a period of time, I'm going to be in control and there's going to be spanking and flogging, but nothing more heavy impact than that, et cetera, et cetera. Or it could be a very, very intense negotiation. The partner I mentioned with the Canes, she and I had a Google Doc that started as a short Q&A of negotiation, like things we did or didn't want in a scene together. It ended up being 14 pages long because we're both incredibly nerdy and asked every nuance or explained everything and then had a grid of like, yes, no, maybes. And then we talked about the yeses were easy. If we matched, those things could be included in the scene. If they were no's, they were excluded from the scene. If they were maybes, we had a discussion about those. It doesn't have to be that intense. But for example, if you go to a kink party and you want to do what's referred to as pickup play, you meet somebody there, you have to negotiate something because you know nothing about this person. Um, 
So typically a pickup play is going to be something very, very specific. I would like you to flog me for 10 minutes or something like that. But an intimate partner scene is likely to be longer, much more in-depth, include many, many more different aspects of play. So you need to have negotiated ahead of time what's on and off the table. And also, of course, having a safe word or a way to express what is within the scene and not. For example, aside from safe word, what a lot of people in, in BDSM use is green, yellow, red. So you can check in with your partner without breaking the scene. And you could just say, tell me your color. And if they say green, you simply continue. If they say yellow, you know that there's a something is pushing an edge and you want to be careful of that. And if they say red, you stop and discuss what happened because something went wrong or, or, or went beyond. And by the way, there's a, if, if you happen to know the Meat Love song, um, there's a joke that Meat Love is the best safe word because I will do anything for love, but I won't do that. Is the one. So, <laughs> and once you hear that, you'll never forget. That's great. Yeah, that's a really important aspect, especially with this, because it goes back to trust at the end of the day. It's such a vulnerable state. And because it is taboo, not a lot of people want to know that this is happening and stuff like that. So having a game plan of how everything's going to go down is great. And knowing what's good to go, what's not good to go, and what needs to be a discussion to see if you guys can explore further, I think is super important, which leads me to believe, you know, that scheduling or talking about sex in a non-emotional way and planning for it can actually enhance the experience. I feel like there's a lot of people in the world that think sex always has to be like a spontaneous thing. Both people have to be in the mood, blah, blah, blah. But like I've noticed for me, whenever sex is scheduled, the sex is so much better than when it's yes. not scheduled. Yes. <laughs> for whatever reason, more consistently anyway, I should say. I'm not saying spontaneous sex doesn't always, you know, it can be fantastic. Like it can really, you know, really set the bar high and go beyond your expectations. But consistently, I've noticed whenever I did schedule sex and I was preparing and looking forward for that day and time that the sex was so much better versus just happening on a spontaneous night just because me and another, you know, woman hit it off at a club or a sexual partner that I've had for years hit me up and, you know, wants to have the spontaneous, you know, ordeal or whatever, I got a booty call in the middle of the night or whatever the case may be. Having it scheduled and planning it out is okay. You guys, you know, you can do that. It doesn't have to be the spontaneous thing every single time. And I think you'll find that your sex life will be much more fruitful if you actually try to schedule it into your week, especially if you find yourself always busy putting yourself in one task into the next and not having enough time for your partner scheduling is going to work for you for sure. Yeah. And in fact, I would say, um, don't forget that scheduling doesn't preclude spontaneous, but only relying on spontaneous means you're not scheduling. So why not schedule? I am a great example of this. I resisted scheduling sex dates for years. Uh, my wife finally pushed it upon me. It was like, no, we have to do this. And it made a huge difference for us. Scheduling makes a difference. Something that we do is we do secret date nights where we just put a night on the calendar. One of us puts a night on the other person's calendar and just writes secret date night. 
and doesn't tell the other person anything about the plans. Sometimes that plan could be as simple as like cooking dinner and potentially having sex. And other times it could be a very, very, very elaborate plan that is almost almost guaranteed to lead to sex because there's, you know, candles and chocolates and baths and whatever. But that's also where kink is a bit underrated because the mind is the largest sex organ. And if you don't engage at that organ, you're only having so much pleasure. You can still have pleasure. Uh, you know, a booty call is a booty call or just a hookup is a hookup. They're great. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you engage the intellect, if you engage the mind and anticipation is a way of engaging. So there's a secret secret date night on the calendar. Ooh, I'm anticipating what that's going to be. Or negotiating a king scene is very intellectual that when you get there, you're so fired up uh, for what this is going to be. And yeah, it is a bit structured, but that that structure is really just a template. It's just an outline for what the evening or the day or whatever is going to going to bring. So I think I agree with you wholeheartedly that you know scheduling it can be not just helpful but even better than just spontaneous. Yeah, I, I really can't elaborate more, you know, than that. Like I said, I find it amazing when it's scheduled. Like I really look forward to it and I mentally prepare. I grab all, you know. All the things that I need, I make sure myself is in, you know, the right frame of mind. So I'll meditate before to put myself in a in a neutral state in terms like of emotions and stress that may occur throughout the throughout that day. So I'm going in in a clean slate, energetically, uh, you know, clean and pure for the most part, and I can really live in the moment and and dive into that experience full heartedly. And we can both, you know, express ourselves and and feel light after, feel a sense of connection and a bond and playfulness after. I love the playfulness after sex. It's one of my favorite things that comes along with it and cuddling and just being super into the person that you're in, you're with and super into yourself. Like It feels amazing to be able to let go, especially with somebody else that you adore and um, cherish and want to continue to have in your life. And we talked about, you know, men and their roles of the dominance and submissive complex, whatever. We touched on the fact that old white men like to be in the submissive for the dom, um, but they would consider a lot of that, as we said, as taboo. And if, especially if they are really CEOs of companies and stuff, they definitely don't want to get that out because they'll probably lose their title. They might even lose some family members along the way. A whole bunch of things, consequences for them comes along with that. And I want your thought process on how that um, affects you know, men's mental health and how a man doesn't feel comfortable being the submissive. And, has, and if he is a submissive, he is comfortable being submissive. He tends to feel the need to hide that, put that in the closet. Like nobody needs to know outside of my partner. I don't want anyone to know that I'm the submissive in the bedroom or whatever the case may be. What type of mental toll do you think that that has? Because I think that can lead to, you know, a lot of depression and a lot of disdain and resentment towards your partner or, you know, to um, people that are around you or to women in general, or if you're into, you know, men or vice versa. Whatever the case may be, whatever you're into, it just it can hold a lot of resentment and just cause a lot of bad things to happen. And I don't know if you would be even comfortable sharing with a therapist um, about that stuff unless they were a sex therapist. 
and specialize in this type of area. I'm going to sort of lead with the end of that because the therapist comment is a really personal one to me. About a year ago, I was looking for a therapist. And when I was sending my initial queries, I said, kink and my bisexuality are not who I am, but they are a part of what makes me who I am. Therefore, I need to know that you are someone I can talk to openly about these topics. And um, one therapist literally wrote back putting the word kink in quotes, like kink is not my thing. Like to me, that was already a violation of a therapist's duty because that therapist was effectively shaming my proclivities, my kink, literally. When I later talked with other therapists about this, they were like, yeah, that should never have been said like that. Then I was with a therapist for a while who said they were very kink and poly and sexuality friendly, and they were friendly to it, but they had no experience, understanding, or ability to meet me where I am. So I let go of that therapist. And I'm now with one who I can speak very, and she's not a sex therapist, but she was very, very clear when we spoke early on. She said, I'm not a part of that scene, but I'm very knowledgeable and I'm very active with friends and, and other patients who are. And what I've learned in the six months I've been with her is that I can speak openly. And if she doesn't have a basis for it, she'll go do some research and bring it back to our next session. And I think that's so important because one of the things that you're bringing up is this idea that if I am a person of power, whether it be CEO or politician or clergy or, some, or, or a community person, and people learn that I have a kink, that could endanger everything else about me and my life and my family, et cetera. And I think the way the LBGTQ plus community has broken down barriers and made it more comfortable to be open about sexuality, I think that's starting to happen with kink as well. I don't think kink will ever be the same kind of openness because sexuality is this spectrum where you're, you're somewhere between very hetero or very homo and anything in between. And I think people have some understanding and grasp of that. Kink has so many different directions that it can go. It's not like this, this like sliding scale that people can envision. And I think that's kind of what scares people when they don't understand. Like if somebody hears, I'm into knife play, they get very like, isn't that dangerous? Um, aren't you worried? Blah, blah. Well, guess what? Like sex is dangerous. Unless you're monogamous with a partner who you are the only ones that share, there's, there's so many things that can happen because of sex that are dangerous. Kink, absolutely. Is knife play dangerous? Of course. That's why negotiation and experience and knowledge and understanding are so important. And that's what I love so much about the kink community is that these are individuals who explore by learning and being careful. They push boundaries within the parameters of the knowledge and experience that they have. Now, are there bad actors? Of course, in any community, there are bad actors. But for the most part, BDSM in particular can be a really, really good therapeutic thing for people who have suffered sexual trauma. It has to be done carefully. It has to be in the right container. But there are therapists and there are guides who are using the power dynamics as a way to help somebody work through past sexual traumas. I've seen this for myself with my wife. I've seen this with other people that I know, and it's, it's incredibly powerful. And I think that goes back and speaks to what you're saying about these men who, for all their life, they've had to be fully in control. 
there's this idea of giving up control within a safe space where they're not actually going to lose their family. There's something called a FinDOM or a financial DOM. That is where typically these very rich, typically white men give complete financial control to a DOM who could basically strip them of their entire worth. And they don't. That's not the goal. But the goal is to have that trust where they've never had that trust before because it was always their job to be in control. Super hard, you know, uh, especially as a man growing up in a Muslim Egyptian household. Couldn't speak about any of this sex, let alone kink and, you know, all of those, you know, dynamics. For me, it's been a little under a year that I've really started reading and listening to podcasts about it. I've watched porn, you know, on it, but as I've grown older, the porn has become less fruitful for me. I want to experience that more and in real life more. Porn is great, don't get me wrong, but it had its time and place and I'm, you know, moved past it. I still watch porn, but I'm not actively looking for, you know, BDSM porn or anything like that. Maybe I will if I start, you know, experiencing different things and I want to get, you know, a few ideas of what to try and run it by my partner. But it definitely has taken a mental health toll on me because everything that I saw is, you know, you're a man, you have to be the dominant one. You have to be always in control of something. If it's not your life, you have to be in control of your partner. If it's not your partner, you have to be in control over your kids. If it's not your kids, you have to be control. have control over the finances. You have to make sure everyone's taken care of, so on and so forth. Sometimes as a man, you don't want to do any of that. You just want to have an hour where like you don't have control over shit, <laughs> you know, and it would feel, you know, great. And I think a lot of men yearn for that type of love and connection and being able to just fully let go, but they're too scared to. And that's why I wanted to have this, you know, conversation with you. So maybe this will reach a person even if it is just one person and they say, hey, you know, those two guys are right. Mustafa and Jared are right. I should fully let go and see how that feels for me. If it works, fantastic. If it doesn't, you try something new. Because you brought up porn, I want to comment two things. Number one, for me, my fantasy world, especially when it's like solo, you know, self-pleasure has gone from porn to erotica. I find that, again, it's engaging the brain. It's the imagination part that could be so much more exciting because it's hard to know what porn is ethical porn and what porn isn't. And second, you mentioned like maybe I would look for BDSM porn to like get ideas or such. I would give a very different suggestion because again, you just don't know what's acting and what's real when it comes to porn. And most is acting, to be frank. And that's okay. It's entertainment. But especially because we're in New York City, if you live somewhere like New York City or San Francisco, there are so many opportunities to visit a dungeon, to visit a King's party, to visit a BDSM event. And those spaces are incredibly welcoming of voyeurs. They're incredibly welcoming of newbies who are trying to just take it in and learn. I brought a friend to a King party who just wanted to learn. The host literally sat down with her for almost an hour and just took her around and showed her what was happening. And explain things to her. And she left so fascinated and so enriched by that experience. And, and also by especially men, visiting a dungeon as a man, often it costs more if you go as a single man. 
but find a woman to come with you as a couple. Um, I know of several parties I go to where it's $60 for a couple and it's $100 for a single man. So um, right. you, you right. literally just find somebody to walk in the door with you and they'll, they can go do their own thing. But go as a man into a dungeon and observe, and you will learn very quickly the difference about these power dynamics and these experiences and break down some of those everyday norms very, very quickly. You may not like it. You may not be turned on by it. That's fine. But the exposure takes you somewhere that I don't think you can, you can get without ever seeing that. Do you have any you know, suggestions? I know we have it in our chat. Some people put some stuff in our um, chat, but um, I didn't really, you know, take a look into it. Do they do a vetting process, like almost um, like background check or anything like that to make sure they're, or um, is it just, you know, pay for your ticket, you sign off on any consensual, you know, things, they may have like a contract for you to sign, they allow you in. How does that work? I've never been to one, so I have no idea. I'll pass on recommendations right now because with the pandemic, spaces have changed and they're only just starting to reopen. So it's hard to know what's what at this point, although I'm happy to share if we talk further. But to your point, there are some that are treated like clubs. So there is a vetting process and you are responsible for yourself and, and, and people you have vouched for. The club environment is really great because like, if I'm in a club and I invite you to join the club and I've, I'm your referral and they vet you and you get in and you do something wrong, we can both get banned. So there's an accountability that's really, really helpful. That said, most dungeons, most parties are pretty open. They pretty much only ask that you pay your way in, that you sign off on consent, that everything is absolute explicit verbal consent. And from there, the rest is up to you and whoever you choose to play with to negotiate. I'm comfortable with that. That's not a great place to start because you, you don't know what you don't know to start. Most dungeons that are like existing spaces where it is a permanent dungeon, the person who opens the door for you when you arrive will say, have you been here before? No. Let me take you around. Let me answer your questions. Let me show you a few things. So they're usually going to give you guidance, but there's not a lot of requirement per se. For example, like you should definitely, part of negotiation when you, especially in pickup play, should be discussion of STIs. Even if you're not going to be having sex, you know, there's always the chance if you're doing impact or something, you're going to have blood. If it's not common, but it does happen, you want to just be be safe and prepared and make sure that you've had those sorts of discussions. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm definitely going to do my um, research and definitely check out one of these scenes. Probably we'll see how the fall and the winter goes in terms um, of COVID. Probably going to see some type of restrictions being put back into place, but hopefully not. We'll see. I'm not going to call anything. I'll just see, you know, for sure, and then run it by you. And then if you vouch for it, I'll go. And then, um, yeah, definitely. To wrap this up, is there any advice that you want to share to men or to anyone really out there um, that wants to try the dominant versus submissive complex um, with their partner? How should they try to broach the conversation if it wasn't like a natural, you know, you know, thing? how they should start. Should they try to start off slow or with toys and maybe, you know, just handcuffs, give your experience, let them know what your best advice is if they wanted, you know, to try it out with a partner that they trust. Fuzzy handcuffs and light bondage, just tying somebody to a bed and things like that. Those are very playful, safe places to play and explore. And a lot of partners are interested in giving those things a try. 
I think for men in particular, there's a lack of knowledge with ourselves. We don't go inward very often and ask ourselves questions. So that's where these like quizzes and questionnaires can be really handy. There's a million of these online, but go find like a list of kinks and yes, no, maybe answer that just for yourself, because you might be surprised that you thought you would be into something. And then the more you read through a list, you weren't or vice versa then have that discussion with a partner. I have found, and this is true for myself and also for people I've asked, in heteronormative relationships, the women are typically much more open to these conversations than men think. You just want to be compassionate and and partnering in the conversation and not dominating. You might come to a point of domination because that's what you both decide to do, but don't enter the conversation that way. Enter the conversation kind of shyly. I have had these fantasies. I'm curious if this lines up with anything that you have as well. Also, there's a book I'm currently reading called uh, Hurt So Good by Lee Cowart. It's really interesting because she parallels normal societal things with kink to make some of these conversations easier. For example, masochism is everywhere in our society. We will intentionally eat the hottest pepper we can find. And nobody, nobody thinks that that's a kink, but that's masochism. So there's ways to enter these, these discussions through normal things like that. She also found that 50% of heteronormative sex partners want to be bitten during sex. 50%. I didn't think 50% were into, into these things, but the reality is people want to try. They want to explore. So as long as you do it openly and compassionately, those discussions should go pretty well, even if they don't end up with the experience you want, you'll still have created a bond with your partner by being open and being vulnerable and admitting that you have some desire that you've been afraid to share. Thank you so much, Jared. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and share your expertise and your stories and really diving in pretty deep here to talk about all the different nuances and how kink is a vast vast world for people to explore. It's not just bondages and, you know, ropes and, you know, being completely submissive or being hogtied or, you know, something like it doesn't have to be that. Find what kink works in BDSM or whatever the case may be works for you. Really just explore that and just keep your mind open and try different things. So you've done wonders for me. I will always continue to reach out to you to talk about these things and have this as an ongoing conversation. And I would love to have you back on as a guest to talk about different topics that you may want to explore. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks, Mustafa. It's been great. Thank you. Have a beautiful night. Thanks, you too.